It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of Doom and Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. A titanic time of timelessness. I don't know. In a <laughs> terrible world. I sort of make that up on the fly. I'm Joe Walton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 900, well, closing out on 1,000, really, post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Yes, and I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife and pissed off. Yeah, and pissed off, and we're going to find out why (laughs) in just a second. She is here to tell you about a terrible experience that she had. Oh, you you ready for me to do it now? Sure. (laughs) Well, we got home not too long ago. We were going to be good little doobies and get TSA pre-approval, pre-check, it's called. So I gathered my birth certificate and my social security card and my driver's license, and I went to TSA. You have to go to the TSA, right, to be interviewed (laughs) so that you can go through uh, the baggage handling process more quickly, right? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. So I presented my... You first presented your documents. I did. Because you're the man. And they were awesome. Right. So I'm in a room full of people who don't exactly look like they should be flying TSA pre-check. I'll just say that. Well, one guy was filling out a criminal background check, wasn't he? Right. Sitting right next to me. (laughs) Um, Don't want to judge, but he was filling out a lot of felons and stuff. (laughs) I don't know why he was even there. But anyway... Um, so they look at me and they're not happy, but I don't know why. Apparently I have a couple of middle names and there's not enough space on the first line between your first name and two middle names to have the very last letter of my second middle name. So, but, but everything else is the same as my birth certificate and everything they needed. Well, she takes my documents and marches off. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
Not a good Meanwhile, song. the people in front of me could hardly speak English, by the way. I don't know if you're, you saw that. And remind you guys, we're in Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. So I'm the one that they march off with the papers. And she comes back and she says, oh, we can't process you. And, of course, in front of everybody in this little tiny waiting room. And I'm like, why? She's like, your names don't match. I said, well, the driver's license bureau didn't have enough space to put the last letter of my second middle name. Oh, no, that's not true, she says in my face, confronting me. And I said, yeah, it is. I, I wanted them to put the full name, and they said they didn't have enough space, so they had to leave it off. It's not my fault. Oh, no, it will fit. I said, well, do you want to call the driver's license bureau? Because that's the way it is. It just is left off. I can't help it. Oh, no. It, well, we can't process this. And, of course, I was not very nice. No, you were I said, righteously indignant. I said, this is a bunch of S. Oh, no. With the last letter T. No way. And I'm going to go wait. A bunch of soot? Yeah, wow. yeah. As I said, it's a, this is a bunch of soot, and I'm going to go wait in the car. You could stay here, is what I said to yep. you, to you at the last part. Yeah, so I'm not here. I'm not staying in here. But there was a room full of people, and of course you're on this list. <laughs> Lo and behold, I drive away in my car because I'm not sitting in my car for like an hour. I expected him to be, and I'm driving around. Next thing I know, he te- he sent me a text. He's like, I'm done. As soon as I walked out, I guess they figured the irate lady was going to come back and do something bad to them. They took him immediately and processed him and got him out of the office. So at least I got you expedited. That's the only way to get you expedited. Amazing, because I'm a scary-looking guy. Have the spouse leave in a huff. They thought I was going to come back and have some lunatic rampage. (laughs) I didn't threaten anybody. I was just mad. Mad, So you know what? TSA, you can go suck it. Just more proof that you are indeed the hostess with the mostess and that we are Beauty and the Beast. Although if anybody calls you a beast, boy, am I going to get mad. And we are here to help you keep it together out there, even if everything else falls apart. Oh, and by the way, I'm always the one at TSA who gets stopped and re-scanned. Right. Always. You are just radioactive in some way, I guess. I have some plastic in my body, but I don't have metals. Apparently, they're now picking up plastic pieces in your body. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So, every time I have to get groped now with the fingers down in the pants, I told this last lady, of course, you can tell how nice I am to the to the TSA who stopped me. I said, don't stick your fingers in my pants. <laughs> she goes, well, I have to. I said, you, I said, you could put your finger this much, and I held my finger up about a half an inch. I said, don't stick your whole fingers in my pants. That's not right. <laughs> and indeed it isn't. Wow, that is pretty crazy stuff. She goes, well, ma'am, would you like to go have private screening elsewhere? I said, no, just get it over with. Be done with this. I said, and you people, I don't, I won't say anything else. <laughs> you TSA people are just unreasonable. Need to get it together. That's right. Absolutely. Wow, what an experience. I mean, you have been wrongly treated. If I just didn't have to fly anymore, I wouldn't. But that's the only way we're getting to these places. That's true. If we're going to go see people, we, we have, have a mission. to get on airplanes. Right. We have a mission, and we must Ugh, suffer. So frustrating. We must suffer to, uh, to accomplish what must be done. Friends and neighbors, 
Have you been injured in an accident? <laughs> you have such a lovely voice, honey. With a temerous, temeritous... TSA agent? TSA agent, right. <laughs> oh, and by the way, no offense to the really nice TSA agents, because there are quite a few of them. It's just somehow I end up getting the ones with the attitudes. And, of course, that attitude gives me an attitude. We're just attitude squared around but here. But now that they're sticking their hands down your pants, that's just, it's gropey. There are fingers down in your pants all the way around. Oh, and then they stick your hand, their hand up your leg and bop your genital. Sounds... Whatever kind you, <laughs> what other kind, whatever kind you have, they bop into it with the side of their hand. Sounds like a case for our attorney. Well, you feel violated when you walk away. That is true. That is true. I'm glad I'm not a child. Or if they did that to a kid, if I had a young kid still, oh, it would be bad. Well. To a little girl, could mm-hmm. you imagine if terrible? We had I a little girl, a daughter, and I like think a it's five year old or something. Time to call the Duma Bloom attorney, but the Duma Bloom attorney says you keep trying to put call Doctor Bones and Nurse Amy. I'm trying to change the subject before you go. Waka waka waka. You know what? I'm venting, and it feels good to vent. <laughs> I was trying to do all the right things and bring the right paperwork anyway. Moving on. So our disclaimer is. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care Whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to a thing we say, especially when we're ranting. <laughs> but you know what? You might just be I the highest. Better, you do feel better. I feel oh, a little better. I'm glad. And you know why? Because the people that I'm talking to, I feel like they're my friends. Everyone is listening to this. You're my friend, and I appreciate you listening very much. Well, our friends might just be the highest medical resource left to their family I in know. a disaster. So they should show us that they have more sense than a box of frogs and (laughs) learn what to do for injuries and illnesses in times of trouble. They do. And while you're at it, maybe you might consider getting some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the irate but lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues in tough times designed by... A doctor, ha, that's me, and an advanced <laughs> registered irate nurse practitioner, that's her. <laughs> Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff or talk to anybody who's ever bought one. And you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, do you have any nuggets of knowledge in that noggin of yours? Well, I'll bet you do. And you know what? We learn as much from you, probably more, as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. Yes. And here's Nurse Amy and to tell you And let me tell how. you how. Sorry, I was just writing to somebody who asked a question because we always answer questions if you write to us at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Yes, folks, I was just answering a question. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages. Dr. Bones, which is spelled out the whole Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy show, and also Doom and Bloom. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, and our other podcasts, which is about current events. We also have Pinterest, too. I don't think we ever mention our Pinterest. Yes, yeah, our Pinterest are survival medicine and Prepper info. Yeah, but I think they look at us look us up by our names. And Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. Dr. You can Bones, find, Nurse yeah, Amy absolutely. for Pinterest. Or Doom and Bloom, even. We have a lot of different pins. So look for us there. Also, uh, you can check us out, our uh, current events podcast, American Survival Radio, on KPJC, Relevant News Talk Radio, out of Salem, Oregon, uh, Lubbock, Texas, KRFE, and Fairbanks, Alaska, KFAR, plus Internet Networks, Talk 365, KIMB, and our good friends at the Prepper Broadcasting Network, among other great networks. Don't forget to check them out. And don't forget to see us when we travel the country spreading the good word spreading the good word of disaster medical preparedness. We're going to be all over all over this year and we're going to be heading actually to Burlington, Vermont for the Mother Earth News Fair. Yes, next weekend and it is June 10th and 11th, 2017. Way up in the top of Vermont, you you realize how close we are yeah, to Canada. Yeah, very Just very close hop, to Canada. Hop skip and a jump. Yep. And that's, right. uh, that's going to be fun. We're going to go to Boston for a few days. Yep, we're going to check we go. out the Northeast, see if there's any preppers there at all. <laughs> I don't I, know. I bet there are. I don't know. We're going to find out. I bet there are. So if you happen to be in that area in Burlington, Vermont, please Mother, check us out. Mother Earth News Fair. Fair. That's right. So come by and say hi. Hey, you know, mild injuries can sometimes be detrimental to the effective function of a member of your survival group. Maybe not life-threatening like a gunshot wound or maybe or a fractured thigh, but nail bed injuries are very, very common. Matter of fact, they're going to be much more so when we're required to perform carpentry or heavy lifting or other duties that we may not be performing on a daily basis now in normal times. Your fingernails, your toenails... These are made up, believe it or not, of just protein and uh, also a tough substance called keratin and similar to the claws of animals, as you can imagine your dog or your cat. When we refer to issues involving nails, it's called ungual, U-N-G-U-A-L from the Latin word for claw, unguis. Now, the nail consists of several parts. The nail plate, which is a body, and that's a hard covering you see at the end of your fingers or toes, and that's what you normally consider to be the nail, but it's actually more than that. There's the nail bed, which is the skin directly under the nail plate. That's made up of dermis and epidermis, just like the rest of your skin. And the superficial dermis moves along with the nail plate as it grows. Uh, you get these vertical grooves that attach the superficial dermis to the deep dermis. Now, if you're a young person, you probably won't see them, but in older people, the nail plate thins out some, so you could definitely see the grooves if you look closely. Now, like all skin, blood vessels and nerves run through the nail bed. And then there's the nail matrix, and that is the root of the base of the nail under the cuticle that produces new cells for the nail plate, for the part you actually see. And you can see a portion of the matrix in your fingers. You look at your fingers right now, just in at the very bottom, it looks like the beginning of a moon or of a circle, and they call it a lunula. That is visible at the base of the nail plate. And that determines the shape and the thickness of the nail. And therefore, if you have a curved matrix, it produces a curved nail. A flat one produces a flat nail. 
Now, from a medical standpoint, you might get an injury to the nail, and that's called an avulsion, where the nail plate may, is ripped off or uh, by some form of trauma. The nail could be partially off, could be completely off, could be lifted off the nail bed and still in place. And ordinarily, depending on the type of trauma, they do x-rays to rule out a fracture of the actual finger, and you don't have that available certainly in survival situations. But you can check some of these things out by simply taking a good look at what we actually see. Well, if you see something that is definitely injured and you, or the nail plate is gone, you want to clean the nail bed underneath or, or what's left thoroughly with, let's say, some saline solution. You want to irrigate it out with, uh, you want to irrigate out, flush out, in other words, any debris, and you want to paint that whole area with some kind of antiseptic, something like betadine, 2% povidone iodine solution would be just fine. Now, you want to cover the, very, the exposed, and remember, this area is very sensitive, with some kind of non-adherent dressing. A common brand name for that is called Telfa, T-E-L-F-A. We have them in our kits. And many people will put some petroleum jelly on top as, a, as an extra covering. So that's something that's very important. And, of course, since this area can get infected, the protection over it is gone. You want to change that dressing frequently. And remember to avoid ordinary gauze like 4x4s. They'll stick to the wound, and they'll be very painful to remove. So you definitely want non-stick dressings. Now, if your nail plate is hanging by a thread, you want to remove it by separating it from the skin folds by using maybe a small surgical clamp and scissors or a clipper of some sort. You can consider putting the avulsed nail bed on the nail, the avulsed nail, in other words, a piece of nail that you actually remove. You can put it actually on the nail bed as a protective covering. It was there originally, right? It is dead though, but it could be the most comfortable option to give some support to the area. You want to avoid scraping off any loose edges as it may affect the nail bed's ability to heal. So that's something very important. If the nail bed is lacerated, is torn, you will, may need to suture that and, and after you clean it. And you want to use the absolutely thinnest absorbable suture available. And something like 6.0 Viquil would be good, or even 6.0 uh, Chroma Cat Gut. These are are absorbable sutures and they're very useful. Now you want to remove any nail plate tissue over the cut, the laceration, so that the suture repair will be a complete one. You want to place a fingertip dressing. Sometimes people will use a finger splint, like a SAM finger splint, to immobilize the digit to protect it from further damage. That's not an unreasonable thing to do. You want to begin perhaps a course of antibiotics if the nail bed is contaminated with debris. You never know. Now, in some crush injuries, such as getting struck by a hammer, in other words, the nail winds up getting hit by a hammer, you might develop a bruise, which is also co called an ecchymosis. Or maybe a collection of blood may form underneath the nail. That's called a hematoma. Now, a bruise will be painful, but the pain does subside within an hour or two. But if you have an accumulation of blood, a hematoma, that's going to continue to be painful even hours after the event. Uh, a bruise looks sort of brownish or blue, but a hematoma could, since it has more blood there, could appear more deepish, sort of bluish black. Now, for a bruise nail, little needs to be done other than give some ibuprofen or other kind of oral pain relief. 
But for a significant hematoma, sometimes you have to actually, that's under the nail, you might have to do a procedure that's called trepanation. And in that instance, some people use either a very fine drill or just maybe a hot 18-gauge needle, IV needle or anything like that, or even a hot paper clip can be used to make a hole in the nail plate. And that hole, though, it has to be large enough to be able to release pressure from the blood that's accumulated under the nail. Might not be too painful if you don't go too far in. Now, this procedure should not be performed unless absolutely necessary, as the pain is going to eventually decrease over time by itself. If you go too deep through the nail, you may further injure the nail bed. So that's something that's very important to know. You have to be very careful about this. Keep the finger dry, you splint it, bandage it, and it has to be like that for at least 48 hours afterwards. Now, it's important to know that damage to the base of the, of the nail, the matrix, as I mentioned, might be difficult to completely repair. You know, once the area that actually forms nail tissue is deformed in some way, future nail growth, the tissue that it makes, may be deformed some way as well. And in situations where modern medical care is available, oftentimes you're going to need some kind of professional hand surgeon, something like that, to give the injury the best chance to heal. But even then, a higher incidence of issues such as ingrown nails often occur. Now, to completely torn off nail, that takes four to six months, probably more than, than that, I think, to grow back. So patience is a major virtue when it comes to the healing process. Well, speaking of lacerations, we were talking about lacerations in the nail bed. Let's talk about them in general a little bit. When a laceration occurs, our body's natural armor is breached and bacteria, even species that are supposed to be normal inhabitants of the skin, get a free ticket into the rest of our body, right? I mean, in other words, they're okay on the skin, but once they get into the rest of our body, bacteria that are harmless outside the body, on top of the body, are definitely possibilities for causing significant infections inside the body. So it only makes common sense that we want to close a cut, also known as a laceration to speed healing and prevent infection. But there's controversy, though, as to whether or not a particular wound should be closed. You may have to take a look and make some decisions. When and why would you choose to close a wound and what method should you use? Now, we've talked a little bit about suturing and other kinds of wound closure. But let's talk a little bit about when you should and when you shouldn't close a wound. Now, laceration can be closed either by sutures or tapes or staples or medical superglues or even industrial superglue. Uh, it, it should be noted that the prescription product does tolerate getting wet better than just regular old superglue. But indeed, superglue can work if it's used properly. Uh, and this is something that you have to decide. Now, the important thing with regards to sutures and staples is that if you're in a survival situation, which is probably hope or hopefully pretty much the only time that you will be suturing or stapling another human being, you're going to be using materials that pretty much are no longer being manufactured, right? If something really happened, we're off the grid and maybe it's long-term, who's manufacturing sutures and staples? Probably nobody. So you may have to realize that these are very precious products and should only be used when absolutely necessary. If you can get away with tapes like Steri-Strips or uh, even, even glues, then you might be better off. At least they're probably going to be more available than sutures or staples. So whenever you use one of 
uh, a suture or a staple, you're probably using an irreplaceable item, and that's something that's important to take into account. Now, after rendering first aid, which includes, of course, controlling the bleeding, uh, removing any debris, flushing debris out of the wound, that's called irrigation, and applying antiseptic, you're going to have to make a decision. And that decision is, should I close this wound? Now, what are you trying to accomplish by closing a wound? Well, your goals are pretty simple. You close wounds to repair the defect in your body's armor, to eliminate something called dead space, which are pockets of air and fluid under the skin, which could lead to infection. These, things, these areas could be colonized already with bacteria, and to promote healing. Now, although less a consideration uh, in survival, a well-approximated wound will also have less scarring. So it, maybe scarring is not as big an issue in survival settings, but you still want to go for the best result possible. Now, the best result possible to me is that it doesn't get infected and the area heals, not so much the cosmetic effect. Now, it sounds, you'd think, as if all wounds should be closed, right? Well, unfortunately, closing a wound that should be left open can do a lot more harm than good and could possibly put your patient's life at risk. Now, take the case of a young woman that was injured some years ago in a fall from the zip line. She was taken to the local emergency room where 22 staples were needed to close a large laceration in her thigh. Unfortunately, that wound had a very dangerous bacteria in it called, I think, Vibrio vulnificus, and that caused a condition or an infection called necrotizing fasciitis. And it's, and it's a kind of infection that doesn't stay where it entered. It actually goes throughout the body. And so that infection wound up causing her to eventually need multiple amputations to save her life, including her hand. So it actually went from her thigh to her, to her upper extremities, to her hands, and indeed the poor thing had wound up having a lot of, lot of very terrible procedures done. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, that the decision to close a wound should never be automatic, but should involve a number of considerations. And the most important of these is whether you're dealing with a clean or a dirty wound. Now, most wounds you're going to encounter in survival settings are going to be dirty, right? If you try to close a dirty wound, such as a gunshot, you've sequestered bacteria, bits of clothing, dirt into your body, all sorts of stuff. An infected wound has a certain look, and it won't look like that the second it happens, uh, the second the injury happens, but within a relatively short period of time, the wound might show signs of these uh, of this infection. It'll look sort of red, and that redness will be spreading over time. Uh, it'll be swollen and have a shiny appearance oftentimes, especially around the edges. And it's going to be warm to the touch, certainly warmer to the touch than areas that are not red and irritated away from the wound. Now, in extreme cases, it may actually accumulate some pus. And pus is indeed uh, just essentially dead bacteria, dead white blood cells that are trying to fight that bacteria and other debris, and that's called pus. Uh, and, and an abscess is essentially a ball of pus, usually under the skin. And so the infection could spread to the bloodstream, and that's really bad. That's a condition known as septicemia, and that becomes life-threatening, or it can become life-threatening. Now, it's difficult to fight the urge to close a wound, that's for sure. You see a wound open, you certainly don't want it to stay that way, but leaving the wound open does allow you to do a few things. It allows you to clean the inside frequently and observe the healing process to see it heal from below. That's called granulation. 
It also allows inflammatory fluid to drain out of the body. And the scar, of course, I admit will not be as pretty, but allowing an open wound to heal on its own, regularly cleaning the area and changing dressings, it might be the safest option in a lot of cases. In addition, if you're truly in a long-term survival material, remember those sutures, staples, are not going to be replaced. And so you have to determine that it is deserving of using maybe your last stitch. Now, other considerations when you're deciding whether or not to close a wound is whether it's uh, a simple laceration, let's say a straight cut uh, on the skin, or whether it's an avulsion, an air, uh, a type of injury where areas of skin are torn out or there are hanging flaps, things like that. Uh, also, if the edges of the skin are so far apart that they can't be stitched together without undue pressure, that wound should be left open. So in an avulsion, if indeed an entire flap of skin has been removed, it may be very difficult to take a suture, and certainly a staple, from to, at one end and then pull it all the way over to the other end to close it, it might tear right through the skin. So that's something that's very important to know. Now, another reason the wound should be kept open is if it has been open for more than six to eight hours. And that is something that you might say, well, why is that? I mean, it's six to eight hours. It doesn't seem like a long time. Well, the truth is, is that even the air has bacteria. And there's a very good chance that they've already colonized the injury after just a few hours. So after six to eight hours, it may be appropriate to leave the wound open. Now, let's say however, that you're certain the wound is clean. It's less than eight hours old. And here are some other factors that might suggest that it's a good idea to close the wound. If that wound is very long or very deep, that might be appropriate. It certainly may be more difficult for that to heal from the bottom up. The, the exception would be, of course, let's say a puncture wound from an animal bite because these bites are loaded with bacteria. You should assume that those are infected wounds almost from the get-go, certainly dirty wounds and you have to really work to clean those, to flush out the debris, and maybe they should be kept open, in, especially in austere settings. Now, they, you may see them closed in modern emergency rooms, but remember they have access to maybe even intravenous antibiotics, things like that, and a much more sterile setting than you will have in any kind of survival situation. Uh, if the wound is located over a joint, that may be a good reason to close the wound because, you know, a moving part, such as, let's say, your knee. Let's say you cut open the front of your knee. Well, just moving the knee back and forth is going to constantly stress a wound and prevent it from closing in by itself through natural processes. So you may actually need to put some stitches in there or staples in there to hold that wound together or some other method of wound closure that, and, and steri strips and glues may not hold together from the stress. It's certainly not as strong a closure as staples or sutures. If the wound gapes open, uh, but loosely enough to suggest that it can be closed without undue pressure on the skin, that's not a bad idea. Let's say if you cut the uh, top of your hand, you don't have a lot of material and, and the wound is gaping open, that usually there's not a lot of movement uh, right on the back of the hand, although you will, the, the fingers will change that, and you might consider closing the skin over that area. So that's, that's, that's one possibility. Now, it's important to realize that you're only going to have that limited supply of sutures and staples, so 
when you decide to close a wound, feel free to mix different closure methods, like let's say alternating sutures with steri-strips, or even adding duct tape improvised into butterfly closures when you've run out of other medical supplies. You really would be surprised to see what qualifies as medical supplies when the chips are down. It really is true. Now, if you're unsure as to whether a wound is clean or not, you can choose to wait 48 to 72 hours with the wound open, changing dressings, dressings at least twice a day, keeping the area very clean. And then in 48 to 72 hours, if none of those telltale signs of infection are there, the red wound, the uh, accumulation of pus, foul odor, let's say, uh, then you may consider to do what we call a delayed closure. Now, some wounds can be partially closed, and that allows a small open space to prevent the accumulation of uh, inflammatory fluid. So you may have, uh, let's say, an area on each side that you close, and then there's just an opening in the middle that you allow to heal in from the inside out. Now, sometimes you need to have some help letting this fluid drain out of the body. And indeed, we use drains. So drains consist uh, of, well, a very high-techy, very expensive stuff that they use in operating rooms, or you can consider using just some thin length, lengths of latex, nitrile, or even gauze. These can be placed in the wound. You place them deeply into the area where you think there's a dead space, and, and you sometimes have to sew them in place because they could easily fall out. Now, these Penrose-type drains, they're called Penrose drains, P-E-N-R-O-S-E, are a pretty reasonably priced version of these, and you definitely need to have some of those in your um, medical supplies. Drains have a tendency to leak, remember, and that's their point, right? Get that inflammatory fluid out. So you have to always put a dressing over the exposed area. It can be very messy, so it's important to know that. Now, many injuries that require closure, and some that don't, also should be treated with antibiotics in either oral or topical form to decrease the chance of infection. And that includes things like natural substances with antibiotic properties, such as garlic or raw and processed honey. These things definitely will be useful in survival scenarios. The truth of the matter is, you know, to decide whether to close a wound or not really involves judgment. It's a judgment call, and it's important for you to develop sound judgment. Don't just automatically say, okay, I'm going to close that wound. Uh, you really have to have a little experience. You should learn about wound closure. We do have a DVD on wound closure that uh, you can certainly take a look at. And we have certainly done a number of videos on YouTube on it and, and many articles on doomandbloom.net. So, and, and that's why we teach wound care classes throughout the country. The funny thing is that the most important thing is not to just to teach you the mechanics of how to throw a stitch, but what we try to do is impart the knowledge of just what makes for a truly closable wound. Uh, you just have to remember injuries, they're part and parcel of survival. You got to make sure that you can handle them as well as infectious disease and all the other problems that are going to confront the medic in times of trouble. Hey, of course, I want to talk about the terrible events that surrounded the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, United Kingdom. There have been so many events, terror events, and active shooter events. We've seen it all over Western Europe. Thank goodness that we haven't seen quite as many, at least mass casualty events, 
in the U.S. Certainly, we've had a number of events in the U.S. Can, that can be construed to be terror events, too. But we have to realize that the, these bombings, these shootings that we're having, that we may never be safe again in today's world. And, and the, new, the bombing uh, in Manchester is just new evidence that no target is off limits to the terrorists in our midst. I mean, teenage girls, children, my goodness, we, you know, this is terrible. And unfortunately, we're going to probably expect more episodes of terror in the Western world in the future. And, I, and many of them are going to involve mass casualties. Now, the mass casualty incident is something that is sort of important for the caregiver, and whether it's in normal times or in survival times. And it's sort of a unique situation because the responsibilities of the survival medic are usually going to be one-on-one, one-to-one. Uh, the healthcare provider is going to be dealing with one ill or one injured individual at a time, certainly in normal times. At the doctor's office, I mean, it's not a group thing. You one person gets checked out by the doctor, talks to the doctor, and, and has their problem dealt with one at a time. But, and, and also, the encounter that the caregiver has with the patient usually falls within their expertise and the resources that they happen to have with them. There could be a day, however, where you find yourself confronted with a scenario like Manchester in which multiple people are injured. And this is what we call a mass casualty incident. Now, a mass casualty incident is any event in which your medical resources are inadequate for the number and severity of the injuries that are incurred. And they can be certainly a lot, very variable in in their presentation. Uh, They can be uh, doomsday scenario events, certainly. Uh, They can be terrorist acts like Manchester. They can be the consequences of a a bad tornado, a major hurricane, a, a, a severe storm. It can be the consequences of civil unrest. It could be battlefield injuries. There certainly are many things. Oh, and we haven't even mentioned the, the, one of the most common ones is mass transit mishaps or car accidents. Uh, oftentimes when there's a car accident, unless there's only one person in the car, you're getting everybody injured to one extent or another. And many times uh, you need more than one ambulance to deal with the issues involved. Now, the effective medical management of any of these events really requires very rapid, accurate triage. Now, triage comes from the French word to sort, and that's trier is the French word to sort. And it's a process by which medical personnel can rapidly assess and prioritize the number of injured individuals and do the most good for the most people. Now, note that I didn't say do the best possible care for any for each individual victim. Now, let's assume that you were in the concert in Manchester uh, or the Christmas market in Berlin or the Boston Marathon when a bomb went off. Now, you're the first one to arrive at the scene, let's say, and you're alone. Well, there are 20 people on the ground and some of them are moaning in pain. There are probably more, but only 20 are, well, sounds terrible to say, but are in one piece. The scene is horrific. Now, as the first to arrive at the scene, You are essentially the incident commander, so to speak, until someone with more expertise arrives. So what do you do? Now, your initial actions may determine the outcome of the emergency response in this situation and determine whether some people live or die. And this involves what we call the five S's, the letter S, five S's of 
evaluating a mass casualty incident scene. And those five S's are safety, sizing up, sending for help, setup of areas, and what we call START, S-T-A-R-T, simple triage and rapid treatment. Now let's talk a little bit, let's, let's go through each one of these. Safety, well, you know that there's a strategy on the part of terrorists where they target crowds by setting off a primary bomb and then a secondary bomb. The second bomb is timed off, timed to go off or is triggered just as medical or security personnel arrive. Now, you may want to run in and help, and of course that's what we all want to do, but you have to remember is that your self-preservation is something very important and you got to keep the medical personnel alive. That's likely to save more lives down the road. So therefore, as you arrive, be as certain as you possibly can that there's no ongoing threat. Now, don't rush in there until you're sure that the damage has been done and that you and your helpers are safe entering the area. Now, in the immediate aftermath, now here's an example of this. In the immediate aftermath of the 1995 Oklahoma, Oklahoma City bombing, there were various medical personnel that rushed in to aid the many victims. And one of them was a very heroic 37-year-old licensed practical nurse who, as she entered the area, was struck by falling pieces of concrete and she sustained the terrible head injury and indeed she died several days later. So it's very important to assess the safety. Is the threat been abolished? Are there, is there a building about to come down on you? Things like that are, that's very important to know. Now, sizing up the scene, that's the second S of the five S's of mass casualties, mass casualty incidents. And so you have to ask yourself the following questions. What's the situation? Is this a mass transit crash? Did a building on fire collapse? Was there a bomb? How many injuries and how severe are the injuries? Are there a few victims? Are there dozens of victims? Are there walking wounded around? Are there some that are walking wounded but could possibly help you in some basic way? Perhaps apply pressure to an injury, a bleeding injury. Uh, are the victims all together or are they spread out over a very wide area? Uh, what are possible nearby areas for treatment purposes or, or transport purposes. In other words, is there a medical facility nearby? Is, is your hospital tent, if you're in a survival situation, within reach? And are there ways for vehicles, let's say, in normal times to come through to help transport victims to medical facilities? Or is an, are there areas that you can use to transport people to where the bulk of your medical supplies are? So. That's sizing up the scene. Now, sending for help, that's the third S, sending for help. And if modern medical help is available, of course, call 911. And you'd want to say something like, um, okay, I'm calling to report a mass casualty incident involving a multi-vehicle auto, auto accident at the intersection of, oh, I don't know, Hollywood and Vine or Rock and Hard Place. At least seven people are injured and will require medical attention. There may be people trapped in their cars and one vehicle is on fire. So I've said a lot, didn't I, in just three sentences. I've informed the authorities that a mass casualty incident has occurred, uh, what type of event it actually was, where it occurred, an approximate number of patients that may need care, and the type of care, uh, burn care, for example, or equipment, maybe the jaws of life, that might be needed to deal with the various situations. So 
That's so far safety, sizing up the scene, sending for help. The fourth S is setup. That means you need to determine likely areas for various triage levels. We're going to talk about that in a second to be further evaluated and treated. Now, you're going to want to determine the entry and exit points for those victims that need immediate transport out if, uh, if their medical facilities exist. And if you're blessed with lots of help at the scene, you might assign people to each of these various areas to take care of the less injured, the moderately injured, the severely injured, uh, and possibly save some lives that way. You know, the more help you get, obviously, the better off you are. And then the fifth S is, as I said before, START, S-T-A-R-T, the acronym START, which stands for Simple Triage and Rapid Treatment. Now, the first round of triage, known as primary triage, should be very fast, about 30 seconds per patient, if possible, and does not involve an extensive treatment of injuries. As a matter of fact, it should be focused on identifying just the triage level of each patient. How much help do they need? Now, evaluation in primary triage consists, consists mostly of quick evaluation of the respirations whether or the lack thereof. In other words, your patient breathing, how fast are they breathing? Are they having difficulty breathing? The perfusion, perfusion is the adequacy of circulation. In other words, are they bleeding or uh, is, are they suffering from lack of oxygen? Is that showing up in their physical exam? And the mental status of the patient. And these are called respirations, perfusion, and mental status, RPM, RPMs. And they're a very basic indication of the level of injury. Now, other than controlling massive bleeding and clearing airways so people can breathe, there's very little treatment performed in primary triage. Controlling hemorrhage is what you want to do. And of course, it's best done with commercial tourniquets, for example, like the soft T or the CAT or SWAT. And it's a sad side of the times, I have to say, that I recommend carrying one of these if you go to areas where there are large crowds and not a lot of security. These tourniquets can be improvised with belts, bandana, bandanas, uh, other items, but these involve having those items with you, and they are more difficult to, to apply effectively than having an actual standard commercial tourniquet. Now, you may not have that, and you may have to deal with whatever you have to deal with. Let's talk a little bit about the various triage levels. And one is the red tag, uh, otherwise known as immediate need, and the, that victim needs immediate medical care or will not survive if they're not treated quickly. For example, a major hemorrhagic wound, a major internal bleeding, things like that. These people are the top priority for treatment. I, that's why the color code for them is red. Uh, or if you didn't have tags, uh, casualty tags, which who does, uh, you might mark the person's forehead with a number one, that top priority. Then there's delayed, a yellow tag, uh, normally, and that victim needs significant medical care within a, sh a relatively short period of time, two to four hours maybe. Uh, the injuries can become life-threatening if they're ignored, but they can wait until the red tags are treated. So in other words, if you have, uh, let's say, an open fracture of the, of the leg without a major hemorrhage, then that person may be able to wait until after you've dealt with the person that is bleeding heavily from an artery. So that's a, what we call a yellow tag. Then you have people that are minimally wounded or walking wounded. They're usually green tags um, or the, the number three. Yellow tag would be number two. Red tag would be number one. These people are generally stable and, and, and they're able to walk. 
Now, but they may need some medical care. So in other words, somebody with broken fingers or who has a, a number of burns, first and second degree burns perhaps, but can still walk, walk and get to where you need them to go to, those people would be considered green tags. And then you have, of course, the black tags, uh, or number four, the victim is either dead or is not expected to live. So in a survival setting, you can imagine that a large open fracture of the skull with brain damage or multiple penetrating chest wounds, somebody with six bullet wounds in their chest, these people may not be expected to live without the without some major help. Even with some major help, they may not be in, so those people are black tags. Now, patients can be identified also with uh, colored tape if you have that, but I think in a, certainly in a survival setting, just marking their foreheads with the numbers one, two, three, and four Indicating the priority for urgent care, I think that that is going to be plenty. Now, knowledge of this system allows a patient marking that easily lets incoming personal personnel to understand the urgency of a particular patient's situation. Now, I should go without saying that in a power-down situation without modern medical care, a lot of red tags and even some yellow tags are going to become black tags. And it's going to be very difficult to save somebody with major internal bleeding without a surgical intervention, crush injuries. Or so, I, I, can't, I can go on and on about the types of injuries that really would not be conducive to survival without some advanced medical care. The surviving victims of the Manchester bombing, they were, if I may use the word, sort of fortunate in that emergency personnel were on the scene in just a very few minutes. Now the death count ended up at 22, but I'll tell you that a lot of the 60 or so wounded would not have survived without the assistance and transport of these assistance of these wonderful people and transport immediate transport to modern medical facilities you know we live in such a dangerous world these days something i call the the new normal and in the new normal you've got to be increased in your vigilance you have to be situationally aware we've talked about that in a number of previous shows and if you want to stay safe in crowds, honestly, you may want to have a seat right front center, but I'd rather that you stay on the fringe of the crowd. I think you'll be much better off. Now, uh, in future shows, we're going to talk about how to deal with these mass casualty incidents as a medical asset, other than just identifying who needs the most help when and how to avoid becoming a victim of those people that want to disrupt civilized society. They are out there, and maybe you're not going to be a victim of them in the near future, but you want to know something? There are all sorts of different places that these things are happening, all sorts of different types of people that, that terror events are happening to, and you absolutely have to pay more attention, be aware of your surroundings, get your head out of that smartphone and look forward sides and watch your six you know we are pretty much out of time i want to thank everybody for listening to the doom and bloom survival medicine hour with joe and amy alton we will be back next week you've been listening to the doom and bloom hour with medical preparedness experts dr bones and nurse amy Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. 
contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.